Well, take your Bible this morning and open to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we are moving through the Gospel of John. And as we find ourselves in John 15, we are, of course, in the upper room. Judas, as you know, has departed. In, in fact, they have left the upper room. If you look back at the end of chapter 14, where we finished last week, he said, but I do... Jesus said, as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father, rise, let us go from here. So they're departing from that upper room, and they would make their way over to Gethsemane, where Jesus would be in prayer with his Father, where he would be arrested and tried. But they left the upper room, and he makes his way over to that place through the Kidron Valley in John 18.1 into that place of a garden where there was an olive trees all around this garden and vines and so forth. But let me read the text for you. This is a wonderful section of scripture. Let me read down through verse 11. Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the, branch, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I also, or have I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Well, John chapter 15, probably verse 1 down through 16, there is an extended teaching of the vine and the branches. In fact, very strongly, Jesus says there in 15.1, I am the true vine. Now, obviously, we find ourselves here, and the vine and the branches is a metaphor, obviously. It's, a, it's an illustration. I don't think it would be proper to call it a parable. There's no storyline here. There's no plot here. It is a a, a rather simple pl- uh, metaphor on the one hand, but at the same time, this metaphor is rich and full, and it actually becomes difficult to plumb its depths. I mean, there's a number of questions that just strike us in the, in the reading. What does it mean, or what does he mean when Jesus says, I am the vine? What does he mean when he says, the Father is the vine dresser? What does it mean for you 
to bear spiritual fruits. What does verse 4 mean by abiding in Christ? And maybe even as we zero in on our time this morning, how come some branches bear no fruits? What does it mean in verse 6 when the fruitless branches are burned? Is it that their works are burned and they suffer loss? Or do they perish forever in hell? Why does the vine dresser prune us? What does it mean for him to prune us? Is he pruning you in the opening months of 2019? Now we can certainly answer those, some of those questions as we proceed ahead this morning and the weeks to come. But let me just jump right into our text and right into our outline. I want to look first with you at the metaphors that are stated, okay? And then I want to look at the fruitless uh, vine that's described and then the fruitful vine that is described. But first, the metaphors are stated. Look at verse 1. Dive right into the text with me. Jesus says, as they have left that upper room... He makes a strong statement, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. He will say in verse 2, every branch in me. So he cites three metaphors right out of the gate here. Number one, I would just say this at a beginning fashion, Jesus is the true vine. He makes that declaration. He's not just the vine. He's the true vine. The, the Greek word there, lathanos, is the word for true. In other words, he's the real vine. He's the true vine. He's the one that is real and genuine. Now, I won't take too much time, but you'll notice there that it's put in the language of I am. And here is the seventh and final I am of John in his gospel. It is a powerful statement. But he's not just the true vine. Look at the text in verse 1. He says, and my father is the vine dresser. In other words, the father, his, as he's just come out of chapter 14, God the father is given that metaphor that he's the vine dresser. It's okay to call it that he's the the farmer, I think that would be fair in one sense, but the thought here is that the Father, Jesus is the vine, but the Father is the one who trims, the Father is the one who plants, the Father is the one who prunes, the Father is the one, if you wanted to say, is the one who waters, but the picture there is that the Father is in control of the vineyard. But there's a third metaphor, the vine, the, the, the vine dresser, three, excuse me, the third metaphor is in verse two, every branch in me. So the third metaphor is that I'll call them followers are branches. In fact, if you glance down at verse five, it says it there, I am the vine and you are the branches. Now, it becomes very clear in verse 2 that off of that third metaphor, there are two types of branches. There are branches that bear fruit, and there are branches that are fruitless. 
There's branches that have fruit on the vine. We understand that here. And then there's some branches where there's no fruit on the vine. But let me dive into this a little bit deeper with you. When, when you see that expression in verse 1, back to that opening metaphor, I am the true vine, what is our Lord talking about there? I think there are some people, and there would certainly be truth to this, is that as he makes his way out of that upper room, as he goes through and comes out the east side of Jerusalem, as he heads down the Kidron Valley, and as he comes up into the Garden of Gethsemane, it was a picturesque spot. They're looking at vines all over the place. If you go to Israel, you will see that. In fact, I think you've heard that before, that the climate of Israel is virtually identical as ours. And so they have vines all over, and so Jesus picks up on a metaphor and says, I am the true vine. It could be that that becomes illustrative as he's walking with them and he's talking here in chapter 15 and 16 and then he goes into his high priestly prayer in chapter 17, but obviously there's something far more there. The vine in the Old Testament was a metaphor for something. In fact, this is such a metaphor of the nation of Israel that they would put vines on their coins that they minted. In other words, when you think of what it was, it's no doubt who it was. In the Old Testament, the vine was a metaphor for the nation of Israel. Israel was the vine. In fact, we don't have time, but in Psalm 80, Isaiah 27, Ezekiel 15, Jeremiah 12... Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah 19, Hosea chapter 10, Israel was pictured as the vine. And I would just say to you that in every single instance of Israel being pictured as the vine, they were judged as a nation for producing and bearing no fruit. That's the picture of the Old Testament. Maybe it helps you understand when Jesus, as he walks and moves, says, I'm the true vine in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, the vine was the nation of Israel. Let me turn you to a text in Isaiah and just show you one of those. Look in your Bible over at the book of Isaiah chapter 5, and you will see how it was a metaphor commonly used, commonly known amongst the Jewish people, that the Jewish nation was divine. And here, the father was the owner of that vineyard. But this becomes very clear in Isaiah chapter 5. Look at it with me in Isaiah 5.1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning, there's our key, his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on every, and it says, on a very fertile hill. He dug it. He cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a vine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. I think the picture there is, he has done, the beloved God, everything for the vineyard and everything for the vine. 
And in this case, everything for the nation. And he put it there that it would produce fruit. You could even see the analogy that he put it there that it would produce spiritual fruits. I mean, if a farmer goes into business here, he goes in to produce spiritual fruits. I mean, that's just obvious in our own setting. In fact, I would even restate that. He doesn't just produce fruits. His goal or her goal is to produce much fruit. In fact, the purpose of the vineyard, the purpose of the acreage, the purpose of the, the, the particular you know, seed that's on that soil is to produce much fruit or he's not a farmer or she's not a farmer and they will not be in business. So he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now look at verse three. Oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have done that I've not done in it? In other words, I, I did everything. And when I looked for it to yield grapes, it why did it yield, he says, wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured, and I will break down its wall, and it says it shall be trampled down, and I will make it a waste, and it shall, be, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up, and I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice. This is probably just a description of fruit. But behold, bloodshed. He looked, if you will, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And this is the testimony of all of the Old Testament. In fact, it was the prophet Jeremiah who declared in 2.21, he said, I planted you. A choice vineyard, a choice vine, holy and pure. And he says, and you have turned degenerate and become a wild vine. In other words, rather than being a steward of that which was entrusted to the nation, they were fruitless. So they were an unfruitful vine. But as you come into the New Testament, in contrast to faithless and unfruitful Israel, Jesus said, I am the true vine. And there's a major shift here in theology from old to new in the fact that Jesus is the true one. That where they failed as a nation, he is the true vine and we are to abide in him. And just to put this up front, he has taken that away from the nation of Israel and who has he placed his stewardship in? You. He's put it in the local church. And your role, our role, is to bear fruit. And praise the Lord, we saw part of that with John Paul. I say that for us. In the New Testament, he's put his glory and his blessing in the local church for us for you individually, for us corporately, to bear fruit. So Jesus is saying here, I'm the true temple, not the physical temple in John chapter 2. He says, I'm the true bread, not just bread that you eat. He says, I'm not just the light, I'm the true light. I'm not just the shepherd, I'm the good shepherd. I'm not just 
the resurrection, but I'm the resurrection and the life in chapter 11. And here he's the true vine. I don't need to say more. This is a statement of his deity. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we don't have time. You could write this one down. Did you know that just the day before, this is Thursday night late, on Wednesday, the Lord told the parable of the vineyard and the evil tenants who, pl- who planned, who plotted to murder the owner's son in Matthew 21. Remember the owner kept sending a servant, they murdered him, sent another servant, they murdered him, then said, I'll send my son. They'll finally recognize my control over this vineyard. And in Matthew 21, they shockingly killed the son, which was obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. So there it is, the metaphors. Jesus is the true vine. God is the divine owner. He's the vine dresser. And you are the branches. But he takes us to a spotlight on the branches. Go back to John chapter 15. This is a fascinating text. And for some of you who deal in agricultural and who use this in discipleship, I want to get this right for you. Walk with me in this journey. Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruits. Obviously, there's two sovereign actions that are taken here. There's fruit-bearing branches that he prunes. And then there is the fruitless branches that are gathered. And in verse 6, they are burned. Let's take those as they come to us in the text. Here's the second main heading. The fruitless follower is described. The fruitless follower is described. And then we'll talk about the fruitful father father is described. And this is important because this is important for the life of our church. This is important for you. This is important for all of our understanding. But first, the fruitless follower. He describes them. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, now you'd ask the question there in verse 2, what does it mean that he takes it away? There are interpretations here as we come to this. Some would understand the fruitless branches to represent believers who are unfruitful, okay? In other words, you got believers, the thought would be, who are unfruitful, and the Lord just takes them away, and they support this view by claiming that Jesus says that the branches, look there in verse 2, every branch in me. That's why they would state this is a believer who's unfruitful, for how can you be in me and, and not know or have a relationship to the Lord? And so they parallel that to being in Christ and only believers are in Christ. However, okay, I'm changing, unfruitful branches in verse 2 are the same branches that are described in verse 6. Look at it there. He said, if anyone, in verse 6, does not abide in me, similar thought, he is thrown away like a branch 
and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. It would appear to me that this seems clear that it is a picture of final judgment. In other words, some would say what that's a picture of is 1 Corinthians' loss of reward. Oh, they're still believers. Like, like it would be like saying this to you. Hey, just cruise on us right here. You've come to Christ 30 years, 40 years ago. It really doesn't matter if you bear fruit. Some bear more fruit than you, and you're just here. And it's a loss of reward for not bearing much fruits. But I really don't think that's the issue of the language. The father, the vine dresser, is removing every branch that does not bear fruit. You say, well, who is that then, Scott? I think these are the self-deceived. These are the, I don't know for a word, the fakers. We talk about fake news. These are fake believers. And I guess I would just share with you as a pastor and a theologian, I don't, I don't really think that when Jesus says every branch in me, he's unpacking union with Christ. I think this is a metaphor. And I just think he's, he's saying, who's ever associated with me, they go into one of two shoots. They either bear fruit or they don't bear fruits. So I think these are the self-deceived. These are the hypocrites. These are those who have listened to the gospel, no doubt, probably. These are those who have heard the gospel proclaimed. These are, these are even those who have made a profession, likely even baptized. They appear to be all in, but there is just something missing. And what's missing is just one word, and the word is fruits. They're not bearing any fruits. And so the Father removes professing believers who bear no fruits. It is, beloved, a picture of judgment. In fact, look at that language in verse 6. He says there in verse 6, the branches are gathered, they're thrown into the fire and burned. He comes right back in 15.8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and then this phrase, and so prove to be my disciples. In other words, reveal that you're really of me. Now, we've been studying the Gospel of John a lot to know that in chapter 6, large crowds followed him. It says in chapter 6, they saw the signs that he was doing, and particularly, he was doing them on the six, or excuse me, on the sick, and then in 660, when many of the disciples heard it, they said to him, when he said, eat my flesh, drink my blood, appropriate me, they said, who can listen to this? And in 666, after this, many of the disciples turned their back and no longer walked with him. Now, that's a fascinating thing. It mentions disciples. They weren't true disciples, but many of the disciples, when they heard that, went like this, turned their back on Christ, and walked away to never come back. In the Gospel of John, there's believers, but then there's true believers. Here, there's branches. Some bear fruit, some do not bear fruit. But there's more. Let me demonstrate why I think this is the language of judgment. 
And I share this with you. I, I love you. And I would say if this is you, you need to look in this morning. I would not want to be an unfaithful shepherd to you. Let me take you through the text. Look over at Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 3. I'm trying to demonstrate that that language of being burned and thrown into the fire is a picture of judgment. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is preaching. He is preparing the way for the Messiah. And they were going to him and being baptized by him. And then in 3.7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you, these are not words how to win people and influence them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, this was a prophet of God. This was John the Baptist. They come out to him into that wilderness, and he calls them a brood of vipers, and he said, you better run. You better flee. Who's, who's warned you about the wrath to come? Look what he said to them in verse 8. Bring or bear fruit in keeping with what? Repentance. I'm, I'm just from me to you, in other words, what he tells them, they're a group of fake, phony, sham, charlatans that claim something, but he says if you really want to be something, then you need to Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, demonstrate the reality or the root of God in your heart by the external fruit that will show. In fact, look what he says in 9 and 10. Do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham and then he says, even now the axe is laid, and look at the language, to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the what? Into the fire. And I really think, beloved, this is not just a loss of reward. He's warning those men that if you don't bring forth fruits... You will be cut down and you will be thrown into the eternal fire. In fact, look what John the Baptist said in 3.12, just two verses later. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with what? Unquenchable fire. This is the language of judgment, beloved. So here he's drilling down and he's describing the fruitless follower. There's, there's no fruits. Look, if you will, just over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And this off-quoted statement by our Lord. And of course here he's speaking in the context of 7.15 of Matthew of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. I don't think you and I would have a problem with that. you got false teachers. They're coming to you in the garb of a, of a shepherd in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're a vicious, wicked, evil, ruthless wolf that's trying to mangle the flock of God. So he's warning them about false teachers, and in this statement in verse 16, you will recognize them by their what? Fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Obviously, no. Figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good, what? Fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear uh, bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit, watch this language in 719, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. In other words, I'm just illustrating my point to you. This is a fruitless follower that is described upon which the judgment that comes to them is to be thrown into the eternal fire. Scary. In fact, you know, look, just glance at 721. This we know well. Everyone who says to me, talks cheap, Lord, Lord, will enter. He says, everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who, what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and in your, and then it says, and do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, he said, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, this is just a fruitless follower of Christ. They're around him, but they're not attached to him in a vital way. In fact, look over at Matthew chapter 13 And again, I'm illustrating this for you. The reason I'm illustrating this for you is that there are believers who think that your works are just burned. And I I think it's far more serious language there from the text. But in Matthew 13, 18, he's describing the parable of the sower explained. Here then the parable of the sower, when anyone hears the word... He begins to go into that, the word of the kingdom, and he does not understand that the evil one comes, snatches it away, that which has been sown in his heart. This is what is sown along the path. As for what has been sown in the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately falls away. As for As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and here's the word, it becomes and it proves what? Unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed, 1823, excuse me, bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another, he says, 30. In other words, you'll bear fruit. Uh, Look over just a couple more. Matthew 18, let me just, here's the language of eternal destruction. And And again, I'm not trying to be caustic with you. I'm not trying to be edgy with you. I'm not trying to be in your face, but we are surrounded by thousands of people who claim a relationship with Christ and bear no fruit. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 18, 18, 18, 8, excuse me. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it from you or throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than two hands or two feet to be thrown into the what? The eternal fire. I don't think he's talking about loss of rewards. I think he's talking about just as the nation of Israel was unfruitful, 
He says, I'm the true vine. If you're part of me, then you will bear fruit. But here, there's a fruitless branch and it just bears no fruit. In fact, one more. Look over at Matthew chapter 25. I think you're familiar there with the sheep and the goats. And of course, this is the language of the final judgment. I think you know that account well. You didn't do it to the least of them, so you didn't do it unto me. 2540, the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, apart from me, you cursed into the what eternal fire for which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So listen, as I look at this passage, okay, these were not true believers. Where there's no fruit, there's no union with Christ. They are fruitless followers. They were in his day, and sadly they're in our day, some who utterly fail to bear fruit and persevere, and they, on the last day, will be judged forever in the context of eternal judgment in hell. Now let me just make a clarifying statement here. This does not mean that you can be saved and then unsaved. It does not mean that you could be saved and then fall away. This is not contradictory to the statement in John 10, 28, that my father loves you and no one will snatch you out of his hand, and no one, Jesus said, will snatch you out of my hand. You say, Scott, what do you mean? Just this. True believers are going to be the branches that bear fruit, and you will never perish. But he's talking to a group of people that are professing, but have no substance to their faith. First John 2, 19 says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. These are people who are attached, but they're, but they're not following. So here's the metaphors that are stated. The fruitless follower is described. Then you say, well, Scott, what does it look like to be a true professing believer? Well, he describes there the fruitful follower, okay? Look at, look at go back to John 15. And you say, well, well then who is? Who, who, what we, who's in? He says that every uh, branch in me, or he says, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Enough for me just to conclude this way, that believers bear fruit. If you're a believer, you bear fruit. Some hundredfold, some 60, some 30 but you will bear fruit. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, right, in Christ Jesus, and God prepared us beforehand for good works that we would walk in them. Believers bear fruits. In fact, in the book of James, to not bear fruit, he said in 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he does not have works, can that faith save him? The answer would be no. In 2:26 of James, for as the body is apart from for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let me just say it this way. There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. It's impossible. You're going to bear fruit. 
some more than others, but you're going to bear fruit. You either bear little fruit or more fruit or much fruit, but not no fruits. Because in 15.8, he told us to bear fruit and prove, be my disciples. You say, okay, Scott, what is spiritual fruit? We'll continue in the passage in the weeks to come, but let me just say two things to you. You say, what does that look like? What kind of fruits are you talking about? What is fruits? Well, two definitions, if you will, in Scripture to us. Pretty easy to remember. There's attitude fruit, and there's action fruit. There's the role of your heart in life. You say, well, Scott, that doesn't sound very demonstrable. No, it's real demonstrable. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Now, he's not talking about our perfection here, but he says, listen, you'll know you're really of the Lord when out of your heart comes love. Out of your heart comes joy. Out of your heart comes peace. Out of your heart comes the fruit of the Spirit. That is attitude fruit. Out of your spirit is gentleness and faithfulness and kindness. It doesn't mean you're marked in perfection, but the direction of your life is rather than anger, it's love. Rather than wickedness, there's kindness. Rather than a blow up of anger all the time, you're marked by a growing, continuing quality called patience. That's attitude fruit. And then there's action fruit. Attitude fruit, then action fruit. Obviously, action fruit without attitude is legalism. So he wants the attitude to be marked by those fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But the action fruit comes in in Romans 1.13. It talks about the fruit of seeing someone come to Christ. In other words, you long for it. In Romans 6.22, it talks about the fruit of a sanctified life growing ever-increasing likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. It talks about good deeds in the book of Titus all over. It talks about the giving of a financial gift to extend his kingdom. These are all action fruits. And so here, just to say it once again to you, he took this away from the nation of Israel. And in the present time, he has given it to you. And I, my prayer is that we do that corporately, but my prayer is that you do that individually. And I'm so glad you're here under the word of God. But you know what the, the vine dresser does? You know what the father does? This is amazing. Look at verse 2. He says there, every branch, he says, um, he said he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, amazing, that it may bear more fruit. So what's he talking about? I think we understand what he's talking about. Just as a farmer would prune his tree that it might bear more fruit. God the Father is working in your life and in my life in such a way that he's pruning, if you will, your life that the excess of your life might be stripped away that you may bear more fruit. The Father doesn't want you to cruise. He doesn't want me to cruise. He doesn't want us to be comfortable. In fact, you don't even have to worry about it. God the Father is the vine dresser. And just as a farmer is going to prune his trees with the result that those trees would bear more abundant fruit, God the Father is going to take the knife and he is going to prune your life that far from being fruitless, you will bear more fruit. I have to tell you, I just remember in my early years here, I've been here Oh, a little over six and a half years, and I remember walking by farms and ranches, and at a certain time when it was pruning season, 
I, uh, I thought like a crime had been committed in the crop. I came by all these trees and I looked at the pruning that had taken place on the ground. And of course, the fruit wasn't large at that point, but I saw all these branches on the ground and I saw all these pieces of fruit scattered on the ground and I had to call one of my friends. I said, hey, I think somebody came at night and robbed your ranch. He goes, oh, no, Scott. He goes, that's pruning. I go, what's pruning? Pruning's when we strip away. We strip away the excess. We strip away the sucker plants. We strip away what is, it, what is not necessary. We leave fewer branches on the vine so that those branches will yield a crop that is bigger and better and sweeter and more productive. This is what Jesus is saying. The father in the fruitless branch takes it away. It's thrown away. It's gathered. It's burned unto judgment. But in your life and in my life, he is going to get out the pruning knife in your life and prune you so that you would even bear more fruits. That word there for prunes is the Greek word kathero, and it just means to make clean. We get our word catharsis from it, and it just means to cleanse, and it means to purify. So as the vine dresser cuts away what hinders the growth of the vine, so God is in your life cleansing you, purging you, purifying you. He's purifying you from what hinders you from being fruitful. So listen, if you've had a hard year, don't question the sovereignty of God Our God loves you so much that when we sing holy, 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 he's going to take his knife, proverbially speaking, and prune you so that you bear even more fruits. It's often painful, but it's absolutely necessary that we bear more, more fruit. God is in the business of pruning us that we bear greater fruit and greater usefulness in our lives. Isn't that what you want? I mean, who in here wants just to coast into death? What one of you business owners just wants to cruise into retirement? That's not the guys I meet. The guys I meet are managing things to give things away to the Lord. But so it would be for all of us. He's pruning you and it's painful, but he wants more fruit. You say, well, Scott, how does he do that? Well, he does that through suffering. He does that through sickness. He can do that through a varied amount of trials He may do that in the loss of a job. He may do that in your life in the loss of a friend. It could even be for some the loss of a loved one. It could be just failure in some cases. It could be that even as I speak, you're being slandered. It could even be that your desires, humanly speaking, have gone unmet and unfulfilled. It could be persecution that you're enduring. Now listen, I'm just telling you, I just want to remind you That whatever it is, it could be the Father's pruning knife in your life to get you utterly, next passage, dependent on him. Because apart from him, we can do what? Nothing. I mean, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor weary to be when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives for It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, which all 
it says, have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for they disciplined us for a short time that seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields, and here's our word, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Listen, I'll tell you what the Lord Jesus is in the business. He's in the business of making you more like his son. And he's in the, image, he's in the business of perfecting us to the image of his glory. And he's going to take his knife and he's going to prune us with hardship. He's going to prune us with a broken relationship. He's going to prune you with some physical affliction. He's going to give you some trial. He's going to bring a relationship, maybe a very close family relationship that you want peace and harmony. And it seems to be frustration. And you seem to be frustrated at someone else. But I'm telling you, God's pruning you because he wants you to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there was a time in my life, I, I don't even think I shared it with you, a few years back, I had this um, gland in my neck that was plugged, I think it was the submandicular gland, and uh, I knew it was there, I had it for 10 years, and there was a, like a, a bump on it, okay, and uh, so I went into my doctor down in uh, Santa Clarita, a man that I knew, and knew his father, and he said, Scott, what you have in your submandicular gland is a stone. So it wasn't cancerous, and I just left it there. But every year, I'd get that stone infected. Food would get caught in the gland, to make a long story short, and then it would blow up the size of a golf ball. So I thought, this is ridiculous. I speak, my life is speaking, you know? And I just would get this big, giant golf ball, and I would end up on this uh, and this is a minor thing compared to some of you. So I had to go under the knife. And I thought he was going to go in there with a laser. He goes, no. He said, Scott, we're going in there with a three-inch incision. I said, into my neck? He said, yeah, into your neck. And so I ended up doing it. And he took that stone out. He just took the whole gland out. And uh, another doctor said, well, just Scott, just like a car has eight cylinders, you have seven now, you know. And so he had to go in, and I had a big incision, but he took that knife. He had to go get it. He got it. I've never had an infection. But we understand those things in surgery, and I'm just saying God's going to take his knife on your life and in my life, not the physical knife, but the pruning knife, so that it would produce spiritual growth in your life. You say, well, what is the knife? <laughs> the knife is the Word of God. The word of God in the scripture is what prunes you to be more like Christ. In fact, Jesus said in 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Spurgeon put it this way. He said it is the word that prunes the Christian. He said affliction is the handle of the knife, but the knife is the word of God. Affliction makes us ready for the knife to feel the word of God and we are cleansed in the mirror of the word of God. Now, lest you or these disciples become discouraged, look at verse 3. He's speaking to the 11. He said, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. 
He said, you're going to be pruned, but you are already clean. In other words, you've already been forgiven. You've already come to justification. You've already been given life in Christ, and you're already clean. But he's going to take his word throughout your life and their life and cut back the excess so that you may bear much fruit. So here's the metaphor stated. Here's the fruitless follower and here's the fruitful follower and let me just say this to you if you feel like you're being pruned you say well Scott I've been being pruned for a year some of you might say I've been pruned all my life and yes that's true but listen that's a sure sign of the assurance of your salvation because the more hardship he brings in your life and the more that we reflect Christ is the greater assurance that he's already cleaned you in justification, but he's cutting away now the things that become distractions for this in mind that you would bear more fruit.